we'll kind of get going here. Lord God, we um, oh, we adore you, and I think I just thank you for these songs that remind us, Lord, to just convict us too. You are our joy. We pursue so many things that we think will make us happy, and I guess it's maybe even ironic around this time of year. Uh, reminder comes up quite often. But you are our joy. You are the source of that. We wait for you, we behold you, and we praise you. Speak through me, God. I just pray that they'd see your word, not me. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, before we uh, dive in today to what I want to uh, talk through, um, I want to just briefly talk about the direction we're going this next year, in 2020. We've kind of alluded to it a few times, and there's something in your bulletin that says it. Um, a few weeks back, Chuck Kinney came and he gave a challenge to us to read through the scriptures in 2020. And a few weeks before that, I think it was actually almost six weeks, if I remember right, he had come to the elder board and brought that up. And um, we not only thought it was a great idea, we thought um, we're going to take it a step further and we're going to make it a culture for our church in this next year. As you guys know, over the past few years, we've taken and we have uh, picked a theme to try to stay focused, go a certain direction. Last year, we did Knowing and Serving Christ. The two years before, we actually had the same theme, which was going deeper with God. But we thought this year, going through the scriptures will be our theme. That will be the unifying direction that we're going to try. It's a big task. Um, I, I realize that. We realize that. But as we look at 2020, and um, I'm going to be the first to, uh, well, I'm probably not the first, but at least here for a long line of iconic vision puns that you guys are probably going to hear, um, we, setting a 2020 vision for our church and looking and seeing where is God taking us both this year and in the future. We thought, what better way to do that than go through the Bible and uh, just see what the scriptures say. So this is a lot of it. And as, um, as an elder board, we all felt this is something the Holy Spirit is leading our church towards doing. So we're encouraging all of you guys to do that with us. Um, to do it, we are going to have a plan that we're following. And um, that plan we have printed off in the back if you'd like to follow it. But we really would encourage you guys to use um, an app. When Chuck came up and uh, talked about it. He demonstrated an app that comes with some videos that give some um, illustrations and kind of guide you through, and we really encourage that, um, which for those of you that aren't as tech savvy, next Sunday I'm going to do a training down the hall after church, so we'll kind of walk through that, and we'll kind of get you all on board and going with that. If you are semi-tech savvy, you can go on the website, and there's already a link there where you can click, and if you, if you do that, um, we can have up to 150 people on one plan, so you can kind of see, like, oh, Jane forgot her reading this morning. No, I don't know if it's that. <laughs> I don't know if it's that detail, but, you know, there's kind of like the, there's a, there's a group there. So if you click that link, you can kind of join it. And I realize, I would say, I know a lot of you guys use, um, use different reading plans. You've done this over the years and stuff, and some of you do it very faithfully every year, uh, and that's great. You might have your own plan. Um, if I could just um, sell it, uh, on, on two things. One, we would like, it's not going to always be this way, but um, our teachers are going to try to, as often as possible, actually teach out of the passages that we've been going through in this next year. It's kind of a new experiment. Some of the teachers are going, what? I didn't hear about that, so you just heard about that. <coughs> we're really good at communication, uh, but we're, we're going to try often to do that. It won't always work out that way, but to try to see if we can do that, and, and we think that's going to be powerful. The other thing is, I, I just, it's kind of, 
an experiment, but I'm excited to see what is it like when we are all reading the same passage every day. I mean, what's going to happen? I think it's, it's an exciting notion. So um, the challenge is, is extended and it's furthered. Um, for those of you that want, um, we will also every week, if you open your bulletins and look in the left column, I shifted some stuff around and the readings for that week are going to be in there. So if nothing else, if you can't get down the app, if you can't do anything else, each week it'll be in the bulletin. So no excuse. <laughs> but it should be fun, and I'm excited about that. Um, that. Looking back at the Word of God to set a vision going forward is a lot of the entire theme of today. And it's kind of funny because this, this passage uh, or this message that I was going to do, I actually was going to do back, I think it was October, whatever. I had one Sunday, and I was supposed to follow up Jerry right when we closed out Ephesians, and I was just going to do a quick overview, and then the power went out. And for the first time in Oak Grove history, we canceled church for a Sunday, which is weird. I don't know what that says about my preaching and what God was saying, but um, if the power goes out today, we'll know something's wrong. Um, what's interesting is, in the way that God led, uh, it was only, I think, um, a week after that, I was going to be preaching up in Trinity Center, because they're without a pastor right now, and kind of uh, my uncle had pastored up there for the last 12 years, and uh, so I was just pulpit filling up there for them. So I said, well, I got this sermon. I'm going to go give it to them. Um, so it was, it was good. I kind of I got to share some of Ephesians and what, the, what we've been through this year, but I still wanted to bring it and, and talk about it this year. And since that time, it's kind of evolved and morphed. And um, just again, as I look at this idea of looking backwards to look forward, I realized that's, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's what Ephesians was all about. Paul looking back at the gospel and showing how that influences our life going forward. So hindsight's 2020 is a phrase that you guys are familiar with probably in our culture. Just means um, we usually learn from our mistakes. Um, you look backwards to learn for going forward. But we're going to use it as a looking back at the gospel and looking back at the word of God, how that propels us forward. So that's kind of what we're going to be going through. Um, so as we do this, we're going to be zooming through Ephesians. I've been, it's, I've been accused of being long-winded at times, um, so yeah, great. I'm going to do a whole book in one message. That's really brilliant. I don't know how this is going to work, but we're going to try to zoom through. I'm going to try to zoom at like a 30,000-foot level, but we're going to touch down on a couple areas. We'll come down to ground level that I really want to focus on that I think is critical for us to understand this book, because what I hope that you guys can have um, after 2019 and spending such a considerable time on um, the book of Ephesians, I hope you can walk away and when you open your Bible, you say, oh yeah, that's what that's about. I remember that book. I know that book. I own that book. Like, I, I get it. I know what that book is saying. That should be the case. If when you open that book, you go, ah, uh, I don't remember what that was about. I remember we were in it for a long time. Well, then we failed. So I, I hope that this kind of puts bookends on the book for you. When we look at this book and we look at it from a whole, um, as I read through it this year, I kind of looked at it from um, just trying to get inside the, the mind of Paul. What was he trying to say? And I kept coming back to this idea that if you're really, when we get really excited about something, you really believe something is true, something is life-changing, um, and you, like, down in your core, you believe that. You know, it might be the way you eat or the way you exercise or 
you know, the shows you watch or something like there's, there's something that you're like, this is life changing. You start telling everyone about it, right? It's, it's a, there's an inf- infectious, contagious energy about that that you want to share. And uh, you might even start like a multi-level marketing scheme to do it or something. Maybe that's too far, but you know, you kind of get, you get excited about it and you want to, you want to broadcast this and you want to tell everyone. Well, I think that's what Paul's doing in Ephesians. He looks back and he looks at the gospel and he is just so excited about that about this power and about the working of this that he can't wait to talk about it. But I think um, we know a little bit about the Ephesians, you know, um, and, and at least I don't know if this is the case or not, if this was kind of a, a, a letter one to them uh, before Christ really came down on them in Revelation about losing their first love. But we do know by the time we got to Revelation and John wrote that letter, um, they were struggling with uh, a lot. They were doing all the right things. They had a a great religious life. They were very godly people, yet they had left their first love. And as I look at this, I, I kind of see some of those tones coming through. Paul talks about a very religious, structured, ordered, mannered life in the latter half of the book. But when he starts it, it's look back at that gospel. It should blow you away. It should be a very big deal for you. And so I, I really think that's kind of what he's doing. He's reminding them of that. There are a few themes throughout Ephesians, um, but the main um, two that we'll look at, let's see if we can get this thing working. I might need to click inside the slide one time, just to get me started. Or we're just going to look at that picture the whole time. Um, the, the two main divisions of the book, at least as we're going to look at them, are um, chapters one through three. There we go, now we're working. Which is the gospel of God, how we are made into be a holy kingdom people. Um, a people that are dedicated to him, uh, that are his. And then the latter half of the book is our response to that gospel, how those people look, act, live. If you're going to be a kingdom people, how do you look, act, live? When we taught this year, we, we broke it into knowing Christ and serving Christ, but in some ways it's actually semantics. The gospel of God is about knowing God, and before you get to serving Christ, uh, you respond to him, you need to know him. So it's, it's very similar, actually, to the same way that we looked at it all year. I'm just kind of dividing it with a few different phrases on there. Um, the, when Paul starts out this, this gospel, just at the beginning, and I'm going to go and kind of go to verse uh, 15 through 23. That's much smaller than it looked on my computer screen, so I'll try to kind of guide you guys here. But chapter 1, verse 15 Paul kind of goes into this little interlude, and he uses this language all throughout that talks about how big of a deal. He says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Um, But then he goes in and saying, I'm praying that God would just open your mind to how big of a deal the gospel is. That's my paraphrase. But he says, immeasurable greatness, the riches of his grace. He talks about the immeasurable power that God worked when he raised Christ from the dead. These are big, expansive words that that Paul is trying to say this is a very big deal, and he's trying to, to, to get them to understand this, how big, of a, big it, of a deal it is. Now, this first part of the gospel that he talks about here, where he talks about, um, it is kind of how we, we're used to referring to the gospel, and that is um, kind of like Paul said elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. This is the gospel. Usually when you say, what is the gospel? This is how we, we think of it. Christ died for me. He died for my sins. When I didn't deserve it, he gave me grace. He rose from the dead victorious. This is the gospel that we proclaim, okay? 
And that's right. It's all right. However, you guys know me. I always like to throw in a however. Um, another twist on it. Uh, it. Really, if you go throughout the New Testament and you, you, you kind of look at how they talked about the gospel and the context, it wasn't just that. Um, in fact, this is actually, th- this, there's been a lot of more of this personal emphasis, like what I get out of the deal, Jesus died for me. This is really actually kind of more of a phenomenon even in the last hundred years. Maybe some say even like the last 60 years I was reading, where there's been a lot of individualistic focus on what Christ did for me. Now, it's true, he died for you, but we'll, we sometimes preach something almost as if it's in the Bible, saying a phrase like, if I was the only one on earth, Jesus would have died for me. Well, that might be true, but it's not, it's not in the Bible. Um, we, we take this, and because our culture is so focused, especially in the West, on the individual individual, we, we become very individualistic, and we look at how Jesus died on the cross and what the gospel is. Well, when, when we look at the gospel in the New Testament, there's a much bigger picture going on. It's not just that you, you were forgiven for your sins. It's almost like that's like, yeah, that had to happen so that this king that was long foretold since the beginning of the world, he's finally come, he's setting up his kingdom, and he's making a kingdom people, and you can be part of it. That's the gospel. The king has come. This is what we just celebrated in Christmas, Right? The king has arrived. He's finally come. It wasn't just you can be forgiven for your sins. It's almost like in order to be part of that king's kingdom, your sins have got to be forgiven. So he died on the cross for you. But that's not the end of it. There's a bigger picture. And we have to see that. It's not just about, if I could say it this way, I'm going to say this many times. Um, It's not just about what we were saved from. It's about being saved to something. And that's the emphasis I really do believe Paul has throughout Ephesians. Acts chapter 20, 28 talks about the, the church being purchased by his blood. And you guys are probably familiar with the, the verse in 1 Corinthians 6 that says, honor God with your bodies because you were bought at a price. We were purchased for something. Purchased unto something. Okay? Now, where this gets interesting is where um, Paul starts talking about being one in Christ, being in Christ, being one with him, one temple, one bride. And this is a thread that I'm going to chase throughout Ephesians, if you'll follow me in the next few seconds here. Um, It starts in chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, so kind of going back there. But if you go through there and you look, I'm reading out of the ESV, so I realize it might look a little different for each of you, but just, there's so many of these here. Verse 3, we're blessed in Christ. Verse 4, we're chosen in Him. Verse 5, we're adopted through Christ the Son, so it implies as He's a son, we in Him are sons and daughters. It's still in Him, in Christ. Verse 6, we're blessed in the Beloved. Verse 7, redemption is in Him. Verse 9 through 10, the purpose revealed to unite all things in Him. Verse 11, obtain an inheritance in Him. Verse 12, our hope is in Christ. Verse 13 through 14, we're sealed in him and given the Holy Spirit. Paul is making a point. He starts his letter by saying it's very critical to understand this, that when you were saved, you were placed in Christ. You were made one with him. You are now in Christ. He says this over and over and over to make that point. And then his logic continues through the book. So if we individually are in Christ, and every one of you individually are in the same man, well then, logically, we should be unified. (laughs) 
at least in theory, we're all in one man, in Christ Jesus. And that is what chapter 2 goes into, especially in verses 11 through 22. He talks about you were once Jew and Gentile, you were both, you were once separate, but now there's only one Christ, there's only one Jesus, and you are in him. So, you need to be unified. This same thinking carries through the rest of the book, and if you get to chapter 4, he starts talking about, um, he really goes over and over on it, and I kind of put it up there again, it's hard to see, but 4, 4 through 6, talks about being one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father and all, over all. This idea of being one is all throughout there. And verse 3, he says you need to be eager to maintain this unity. Why? Because that's what the heart of our Lord is. If we are one in Him, we're supposed to have His mind. We're going to talk about that in a second too. Going forward into chapter 5, he talks about, there's a, there's a bunch of commands and stuff in chapter 4 and 5, which we'll get to, but once we get to the end of this marriage thing here, right at verse, um, verse 32, he says something that just blows us away. He says, this mystery is profound. After talking all about husbands and wives and how they interact, he says, the mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And we see this, this is the first time in the New Testament where we see this reference to the, the church being the bride of Christ, but it comes back at the end of Revelation when we see the, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and in all her glory and beauty, and we see that we are supposed to be bonded with Christ in something very much like a relationship that is a marriage relationship. So basically, like a marriage relationship at least should work, you're supposed to, in marriage, become one. You take two separate entities. This is actually kind of lost. Maybe it's foreign even to some in this room, but in our culture, it's almost been entirely lost. In our culture, it's two entities that come and cohabitate under one roof, and hopefully they get along and make each other happy, but they're two individuals that can at any point walk away if they're not happy anymore. But that's not how marriage is supposed to work. It's supposed to be two individuals that say, I lay down my rights, and we become one together. We become something new together. That, that's what laying down your rights means. I don't have a right to anything anymore together. Let's see what we become. Let's take two, make them one. Marriage was designed by God to be a picture of Christ in the church. So in the same way, think about how a marriage relationship would work. When you become one, if we are to be one with Christ, we're to submit to him as if he's the head of our home. We find joy in what our husband finds joy in. We find joy in him for himself. And we serve him, not out of obligation or because he told us to. We serve him because we love him. It comes down to that. So what does all this mean? We talk about the power of the gospel and how, how big of a deal this gospel thing is. Um, but the real big thing is not just that Christ died for our sins. It's not just that he was raised. Those were immeasurably powerful events by God the Father. But the real big ticket here is that we are made one with him. We are bonded with him. And that is what Paul is so excited about. And so that's where he comes into the second half. So when you think about the gospel, I want that to be the thing. When you think about the first half of Ephesians, you think about what, what is in there and what is it all packed up, what was Paul so excited? Being one with Christ. 
that God the Father stepped into human history and made it possible for us to be one with him. That is what the gospel is about. We can be a people one with him. But how does that flesh out? How does that look? What does it look like in real life? And that's where we come into the second half of the book. Now, when we get into chapter four, I'm going to get a drink of water because this is going to get serious. It um, starts to get real. Um, he starts giving a bunch of commands, and he starts really laying it on thick. He's coming down hard on all these things, and it goes all the way through chapter 5 and 6, all the way up to that armor of God part, okay? But I want you to know, if you look at these just simply as commandments, if you read these things like put off falsehood or let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth or flee sexual immorality or be angry and do not sin, don't let the sun go on. If you just take those, compartmentalize them and make a new 25 commandments list that you need to follow, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to get frustrated because that's Old Testament law. You're going right back under law. You're just saying, okay, I need to do all these things. There is a reason why Paul started the letter with what he did. You are already one in Christ. You don't need to do these things to be one in Christ. You are already in him. They were, you are, as a free gift, you are in Christ. It's by grace you are saved, we saw in chapter 2. So when we get to these commands, and they are given as commands. I'm not trying to skirt that. Paul is very imperative in his language. Do this, don't do this. But it's with that, that preface that was made. I would like you to think of them more as expectations. Expectations for how a kingdom people should look. So you say you're in Christ. You say that you've received that gift. You say you've, you're now part of him. Okay, well, this is how you should look. This is, and, and it sounds pretty bold for Paul to say that, but there's a reason he's saying this stuff, okay? And it comes back to knowing the heart of Christ. And I'm going to talk about, I'm getting ahead of my notes here, so that's, I guess that's a teaser. But when we look at this, when we look at each of these commands, what I want you to do, look at them as expectations of a kingdom people and read them under the banner of that verse I had Dina read when we started. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Since you have been raised with Christ, and you can add any of those things that we're going to come at, across. I mean, you look at, since you have been raised with Christ, walk worthy with gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. Since you've been raised with Christ, bear with one another gently and humbly. Be eager to maintain unity. Since you've been raised with Christ, build one another up more. This is how you should look. You should be building one another up. You should put away falsehood. Don't let anything corrupt come from your mouth. Put away bitterness, wrath, anger. Forgive each other. Flee sexual immorality. Walk as children of light. Submit to each other. Submit to your husbands. Love your wives. Honor your parents. Obey your employers. Honor and respect your employees. And the list does go on. There's more. All of these things, read them under that. Because Paul has made his case. You are in Christ. So as a result, this is how you should look. Put another way, as I already said, this is about desiring the mind of Christ. If you are in him, as in a marriage relationship, why don't you figure out what he wants? Ask him. He's put it down here, and he put it in Paul's head when he wrote it down. These are some of the things that Jesus cares about. 
These are some of the things that your heavenly husband cares about. And if we are going to be in a marriage relationship with Christ, then we need to love him and love what he loves and delight in what he delights in. Why do you think Jesus cares about this stuff so much? How, I mean, not asking for a show of hands, keep them down, but how many of you have ever been in the thralls of bitterness or sexual immorality or anger, long, long-term things that just weigh you down, bind you up, and enslave you? Now, what husband would want his wife to be enslaved? I mean, come on. Of course he doesn't. So when he says, flee those things, it's not just a command that he's just telling you because he's saying, I want you to be a certain way. It's because he loves you. And when we obey him, it's because we are seeking his heart and we're trying to get his heart. Years ago, um, well, when I was growing up, this, this idea, what would Jesus do, was pretty popular. Everyone had bracelets. It's really cool. Um, it came from um, Charles Sheldon's book, which was actually written 100 years before. I don't know why it took 100 years to become a fad, or maybe it was a fad and faded out, but it was, his book was written in 1894. Um, Charles Sheldon was a pastor, and he felt he wanted to teach his congregation something, so he actually started writing this fictional story, and as it's told, at least, um, every Sunday he would have a new chapter, and he would sit down on the steps and read the next chapter of that story, and that's how it came about. And in that story, it's about this hypothetical town that their whole world has changed because everyone decides to take a year-long commitment to ask, before they do anything to do, to first ask, what would Jesus do? And then do whatever the answer is, okay? It's a great idea. I grew up with it. Again, it was really cool um, to wear the bracelet, at least, not to actually do what Jesus did. That never has been cool. But um, it was, it was it, everyone seemed to have them, and everyone was doing this. But growing up as a young man kind of doing that, um, I think it kind of took Jesus and almost put him into this distant um, past, almost like a sage-like status, almost like a moral philosopher. So it was almost like, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? And now I'm going to try to do it. Um, So, I mean, you could really like almost fill in what would Buddha do, what would Muhammad do, and still probably have a pretty good life if you're just emulating that, right? Because you're just copying something. And don't get me wrong. Ephesians 5.1 says we're supposed to be imitators of God. This is in the text too. It's there. We are supposed to imitate him. But this one relationship, this, this depth that we're supposed to have is deeper than that. It's not just look at a past distant figure in history. It's, it's about knowing him now, in the here and now. When we started Ephesians, Jerry started us, and he encouraged us to do this. Many of us did it, where we took the card and every Uh, It had a question on it, and when you wake up in the morning, you would say, where are we going today, Jesus? And that was, in in some ways, it's very similar, but I think the question that we should be asking is something more like that. What do you want to do now, Jesus? Not just what would you have done. It's it's a real time, a real life, here and now, real present relationship with Christ. And each of us need to be looking at things like that, because this is what it means to be in this kind of one relationship with with Christ. This is why Ephesians 5.32 said this is such a mystery. This is a great mystery. I mean, think about how, how strange and, and awesome this is, that we are the bride of Christ, and we're supposed to have this kind of relationship with Him. We have to be able to get to the point where when we look at commands, not just in Ephesians, but all throughout the New Testament, 
where you start to read them, not just as things that God has told you that you're supposed to do, but when you start to read them as expressed desires of your husband, it's a different perspective altogether. I know that's weirder for us guys to to walk through, so just bear with me here. Um, But think about that. Every command you read, and even, we're encouraging the whole church to go through the whole Bible this next year, all right? We're going to come across the laws of the Old Testament. You're going to come across a lot of very, looks like very strict and regulated rules of God and saying, why did he say that? And there's not always going to be an answer to the question of, God, how does that show me your heart? But we should still ask it. And when you look at those, and when you look at things like the Ten Commandments, and you start to see them as desires of a creator who created this being and knows how it should work, it changes how you look at them entirely. Okay, so coming back, I told you we are going to touch down a few areas. That was touching down. Um, we're going to kind of zoom up and then come back over into chapter 5 here. And this is where, to me, it gets really exciting because Paul goes through all of these, these commands. These, this is how kingdom people should look. If you're in Christ this is, and you're really seeking his desires, well, here's some of his desires. You shouldn't be angry. You shouldn't have corrupt talk coming out of your mouth, all that kind of stuff. That's what a kingdom people looks like. But then he starts getting towards um, midway to the latter part of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 into these, these pictures. And he's talking, again, we've already talked about marriage some, but I'm going to come at it from a different angle. Um, he starts to look at this and, and give these real-life examples that many of us deal with. Marriage, parenting, um, being employed. Hopefully, most of us have dealt with uh, at some point in our life. Um, you know, and, and he talks about these pictures, and I might even add a few as well. But the point that I think that we need to see is we have an opportunity, and I'm going to say that again, opportunity to be living pictures of the gospel. And that's what he's talking about here. When he goes through these things and he talks about what you should be doing in your relationship, again, think of these commands. When it says, husbands, love your wives, don't think of it just as a command. Think of it as Christ desires you to love your wives because that's how he loved his church. You have an opportunity to do that. Husbands, when you love in this way, you you are proclaiming to the world and to the forces of evil in spiritual places, this is what Christ's love looks like. Think about that just for a moment. You are shouting the gospel by the way you love your wife. And you can insert the negative opposite application there if you want. Think about how powerful our testimonies would be in the workplace if when, when we say, you know, I'm, I'm going to head home tonight. I'm not going to hang out. I, I need to be with my wife. And, and, and the guys go, man, that's weird. <laughs> Old ball and chain keeping you down you know, or something, and, and your response, you, have, you, can, you can give a response that, lists, that looks like this. Uh, well, I'm a Christian, and Jesus tells me to do that. Sounds great, right? Or you can say, you know what? I do that because I love her, and that's, that's because Jesus loved me in that way. Think about how different that is. One looks like you're a religious person, and you just push them away, actually. And you'll probably walk away feeling pretty good about yourself because you said the word Jesus. And you said, well, Jesus wants me to do this. But what you really just showed them is, I'm a moral person and you're not. Whereas, on the other hand, if you come and you say, I'm doing this because it's the way that Jesus loves me. And I love her in the same way. 
you just showed the world what Christ's love looks like. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just simply not talking about your wife. Maybe it's going out of your way to do something for your wife. I don't know. Learn from Jesus. He's our example setter, right? The way that we love our wives is the way that we demonstrate the gospel to those around us. You're shouting it. Wives, when you submit, oh my gosh, I have, I'm 33, and I have grown up, and I've heard pastors dance around this passage so many times and excuse it and kind of come at it from this perspective of, well, I didn't say it, the Bible said it, so submit. You know, this kind of like, they're just like apologetic about it um, or something, and I feel like they just completely missed it. Again, think of what, what Paul is doing to this whole book. Wives, you have an opportunity. It's not just a command. It's an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. You're demonstrating. You're showing the world this is what the church does. The church, this body that I go, you know, I go to church on Sunday. Well, all those people, they're following Jesus, and they submit to him. When he says right, they go right. When he says left, they go left. I submit to my husband to show you a picture of what that looks like. It's not because your husband deserves it. Definitely not. It's out of reverence for Christ is what it says. You submit to your husband because you're, demonst- you're shouting at the world, this is what the church is supposed to do. That is an incredible opportunity. The pictures keep going. Children, You have an opportunity to honor your parents. Why? Because you're showing what it means to honor authority. I mean, that's an awesome, awesome opportunity. You will have it throughout your whole life, but you have it so much more when you're at home. You have it so much more because you have the opportunity to show, I'm submitting to my parents' authority because God is my authority. Throughout life, you're going to have authority in your lives all the time, and you always have the opportunity to do that. Fathers, and I'm going to actually even insert parents, a little parenthetical there. You have the opportunity to show what the love of a heavenly father looks like. If you don't know how to be a father, look at God. You're demonstrating it. You're showing your children, you're showing the world what the love of a father looks like. And it's both parents. Because I know women can also provoke their children. So maybe that was unfair, but um, it says fathers don't provoke your children. I'm like, oh, parents can both provoke their children. But that's the negative. The positive is to train them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. You can demonstrate being a heavenly father to them. Employees, you get to show what a bondservant of the Lord looks like. And employers, you get to show what the master looks like. And these are just some pictures that he gives. He doesn't talk about singles, people that are single and maybe will be single for life, but you have an incredible opportunity as well to demonstrate what it looks like to be sold out to God, to love Him above everything else. All of these things, we have to look at them not just as restrictive, well, I'm a Christian, so I need to follow this pattern. It's not that at all. You get the opportunity to shout the gospel through the way that you live. So this is a great way to look at things, and it, it helps us a whole lot, but what you're going to come up against is you're going to find, that's too soon, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to find that even though you're coming at this and you're saying, God, I want to serve you, I want to obey you, and, and I don't want to do it just because I'm supposed to, I want to do it because that's your heart. 
and you're getting God's heart, and you're saying, God, give me your heart. I want it. I want to serve you out of love. You're still going to run into your flesh. Your flesh is still going to want to take over, and you're still going to get frustrated. And God knows this. Psalms 103 says he remembers we are dust. He remembers our frame. And because of that, he didn't leave us alone in this. In chapter 4, kind of going back a little bit, we saw this insert of the spiritual gifts that came. And the spiritual gifts are given out of Christ's victory, and they're given by grace to us. Just like our salvation was given by grace, so these gifts, they're not something we earn. They're given because God simply knows we can't do this alone. And so he gives us things to do that. <clears throat> now, there's an interesting thing. I'm going I'm to touch down here a little bit on spiritual gifts. Um, we look at these spiritual gifts, and quite often we turn them into ministry themselves. You look at some of these, if you go to verse 11 and 12, you have apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds or pastors or elders, it's all the same word, teachers. Um, we, we turn those, like if you hear of a young man or woman going, going to be a, a, a pastor or a missionary, we, oh, they're going into the ministry. Okay, I'm going to get on a soapbox here. As far as I can tell, that's not the ministry. The saints are the ones doing the ministry. These gifts are given because God wanted his church to know how to do the ministry. The teachers up front are instructing and equipping you, or they're supposed to be, to do the work of the ministry. They are not doing the ministry, exclusively at least. When I was up at Trinity Center, um, I probably stepped on some toes, but you know, when you're up there just once, you get the chance to do that. So they haven't invited me back, I don't know why. But they, uh, they're, they're looking for a pastor. This is a small church, 12 people, 15 people. My, past, my uncle was pastor there for 12 years. I knew they were looking for a pastor, so <clears throat> I asked them, I said, why do you want a pastor? Why do you think you need one? Are you performing the work of the ministry in Trinity Center? Have you not been equipped? I know my uncle preaches the word, I know he equips very well, so I know that they are equipped. Why do you think you need a pastor? If you want a pastor just for the sake of having him do the ministry in Trinity Center, that's the wrong reason. If you need someone to keep equipping you, well, that's good. You're asking for the right reason. But I think, I was thinking about that, and just even with us, why do we crave a certain shepherd, a certain teacher, a certain direction? Sometimes it's it's just because we want them to do the ministry, where instead God gave gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We have to get out of the habit of wanting to bring our unsaved. If we can just get them to church, they'll get saved. No, you know the gospel. You know it. Tell the gospel. You've been equipped. You have been. Church needs to be a place where you come to get equipped to do the work of the ministry not where you come to just be ministered to. Now, please understand me. There are times we need to come to be in this group with each other to be ministered to, and I get that. That is the other side of this church thing that God set up, of being one. When we're unified, when we are one, when we're together, we build each other up. But that's not the end all. That's not the end of church. That's not what church was supposed to be. 
Church was supposed to be where you come to get equipped to then go out and do the work of the ministry in the week. Many of you are so good at that. I, I have learned so much from you as I've watched you as you've gone out and you've done the ministry. But this all comes back to this aspect. God has something where being in him, being this kingdom people, this is how they're supposed to look. They're supposed to be a people that comes, fills up those spiritual gifts that God gave them. It's almost like they get supercharged on Sunday, then go out and explode in the week. That's what it's supposed to look like. The final thing here, though, God also knew when he invited us in with Christ, he was inviting us into a spiritual battle, a war that we have no possible hope of standing up in. We can't even see it. It's going on around us. It's a spiritual conflict that we can't even understand. And we're called into this. Because guess what? If you are in Christ, he's in that, and now you're in it. All right? And so he didn't leave us alone. He gave us the pieces of armor we read in, in the last part of chapter 6. We see these things, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, footwear of readiness to share the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. Sometimes that's overlooked, but seems to be right here with part of the whole armor of God. As we close today, turn to Isaiah chapter 59. I'm going to be reading from Isaiah 59, 14 through 20. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord dries, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. It's not a one-for-one, one, but you can't help but read that, see some similarities, right? And that's all I want you guys to see. We're, we're a New Testament church. Um, we've been raised, probably, honestly, reading more of the New Testament than the Old. So when we read this, we go, oh, that's just like Ephesians 6. But the people he was writing to would have thought the opposite. In Ephesians 6, when he talked about the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, they would have thought, wait, isn't there like a passage in Isaiah that talks about Yahweh being dressed that way? Yeah, there's a reference point. What am, what am I trying to say? I think the Lord, not only has he equipped us, he's dressed us like himself. If I could go as far as saying he's dressed us as a warrior bride, I think that's kind of cool. He has made us, he has dressed us and protected us like he is. This brings us full circle back to what we've been talking about today. It's not just we're, what we are saved from. It's what Christ has saved us to. We are invited into his 
conflict into his world. It's just like marriage. I mean, Leah and I have realized this coming from two separate worlds. Um, I'm humbled that she came from her world and came to mine here in Northern California. But it's really a picture of that. We are invited into Christ's world. That's what we are saved to. And we are saved to be that until he returns. We are his body, we are told, to outwork his, his desires. So we must seek him. As we read the word this year, as we go through it, that is my challenge to you, is to take these scriptures, look for the intent of your God. Try to see, ask for his heart and ask him to show you that and ask him for grace to see it. When you read the laws and the directions and the commands, read them as not just something harsh and disconnected, but a statement from your creator's heart, from your husband's heart, that he knows what's best for you and how to love you. And I don't know, Paul was so excited about this. And I I hope you guys are too. It's, It's exciting to me to look at it like this and see the things that we have been saved to. Throughout Ephesians, and this is the last slide, I promise, uh, these are some of the things. We're a new creation. We're a temple, a dwelling place, a bride, a unified entity who is one with their husband, equipped, dressed, ready, and living out his will on earth until he returns. So let's go live it out, be his bride, gather up the lost in this next year. God, we are here because of you and for you. We could not be standing here doing anything we do without your spirit to guide, equip, strengthen, and clothe us. And so we thank you for that. I thank you we can be one with you, united. Convict our hearts, Lord, as we dive into your word this next year. Lord, just uh, keep us faithful to that as well. And I, I just, I'm excited to see what you're going to do, Lord. But I pray that we would also just have the courage to go out and extend your will here on earth in each of our communities, our homes, wherever we're at. In your name we pray. Amen.